This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. In a world where oil-rich nations, like Russia, are more likely to start wars than oil-dependent nations, it's surprising how little attention is paid to these so-called aggressive petro-states. After all, the oil and gas wealth of these nations is said to prop up the global arms trade, it provides diplomatic leverage in tricky political situations, and it allows them to support violent and non-violent proxies all around the world. In essence, the profits of oil and gas could be said to drive global conflict and global defence spending. I'm your host, James Rogers. This is the Warfare Podcast. And in order to dig deeper into the history of oil and war, I've invited Emma Ashford onto the pod. Emma is a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and a non-resident fellow at the Modern War Institute at West Point in the US. She's also the author of a new book, Oil, the State and War, published by Georgetown University Press. As a result, Emma helps us to explore the many potential links between oil production and foreign policy and how oil production influences global conflict. Enjoy. Hi Emma, welcome to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing today? Doing great, thanks so much for having me. Well, not a problem at all. We had to get you on the podcast, Emma. You've released a book called Oil, the State and War, and I can't think of a more important time in recent history to be discussing this topic. Did you release it at this moment in time where Russia, arguably a state that is underpinned by natural resources, by oil and natural gases, is driving offensive warfare within Europe. Was it released to coincide with this? Or is this something you've been working on for a long time? No, it was not released to coincide with this. You know, you write books a long time before they're released. So it's very relevant to what's happening, but I don't talk about it at all in the book. In fact, this was once my dissertation many, many years ago, and is an entirely different book now. But the topic is similar. And I've always been really interested in this interplay between energy, energy security, and what petrostates, that's like states that have lots of oil and gas, what do they do with those resources? Because we have this real tendency, I think, to talk about it from the importing side. You know, we're America, we're Britain, we import our energy, and we don't talk nearly as much about what those exporting states do with it. So that's really the core puzzle that I'm trying to get at in the book. And as you say, it ended up being a little more relevant at the moment than I would have expected. 
You make a quite clear, some might argue controversial claim in the book, that these petro-states, these states that rely on oil and gas, are perhaps more inclined to wage war to start wars. This is the Warfare Podcast, after all, so take us back a bit further in history and tell us what evidences those claims that you make. So it's actually a really interesting question because until about 1973, maybe a little earlier, maybe a little later, scholars are kind of divided. But until the era of the 1970s and the oil crises, we typically assumed that energy exporters were more likely to be invaded for their resources. And if you go back and you look at the history of how oil emerges into international markets, you know, you see America as a big producer, the Russians are big producers, but then in World War One, and then definitely by World War Two, we're seeing armies fighting over control of oil fields in countries making deals to carve up parts of Persia and parts of the Middle East to try and get those resources for war. But something changes round about that 1970s period when we see lots of nationalizations, in the oil industry. And we see some of these big petrostates like Saudi Arabia or Iraq or Iran. Russia is kind of an interesting but separate case because of the Soviet economy. But we start to see a lot of these petrostates really come into their own as big players in the global economy because now they control the resources, they're exporting it, and it gives them some leverage and influence in world affairs. And so that's the era that I mostly talk about in the book is that post 1973 era, when these states can start to think about using their oil wealth or some of the soft power that comes with being a big exporter or even just market leverage, and they can use that in international relations. And as you say, one of the things that I found on the statistical side is just that these states tend to be more likely to start wars than other comparable states. So do we bookend this history then with the Iranian Revolution, with the Suez Crisis, with the end of empire? Is this the emergence of independent sovereign nation states that know they have vast amounts of oil resources that really have to be quite bullish to ensure their sovereign independence in a world of great powers? Yeah. And again, there's some really interesting work out there at the moment. You know, I'm thinking of Jeff Colgan's book on partial hegemony, in which he talks about how even the greatest great powers during the Cold War, the United States and the Soviet Union, they were still dependent on oil exporting states for some of that power, particularly the US. And so I think it's very hard to put a specific date on it. But sometime between the end of World War II and the early 1970s, we start to see those oil exporting states setting up OPEC, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, you know, nominally a cartel. We see them nationalizing many of their industries, pushing out, as you say, colonial powers. And so somewhere in that period, I think we cross the line from petrostates as being relative recipients of foreign policy or, you know, they are pawns in global geopolitics. And then they start to become actors more after that period. Is some of that driven by a colonial legacy? I mean, you look at some of the ways in which Iraq or Iran were tapped for their resources, the tariffs that were placed on them, or the profits that were skimmed off the top by the British Empire. Is this something that is a lesson from history? A lesson that if you don't become bullish or bellicose, then you will be overridden. You will be taken advantage of. Is this an age-old practice of realism within the international system? It is a foolish state that does not power maximise. It must obtain as many arms as it can, the highest levels of quality, in order to defend itself. 
It's a really interesting question. I mean, I guess I'll say two almost entirely different things here related to that. One is that I think, you know, we know from the sort of comparative politics scholarship on the resource curse, the colonialization plays a big role here because it turns out that the most telling factor that determines whether or not a petrostate suffers from the resource curse, whether they have poor economic development, whether they're an autocracy, whether they're corrupt, etc. It's all about the strength of pre-existing institutions domestically. And in a lot of cases, the colonial legacy plays right into that. So many of these states became independent and discovered energy right about the same time. And in some ways, never really had much of a chance to actually break free of that. The other side of it is, I think we do see from these states, a level of willingness to use their resources to try and gain themselves some advantage in these games that are played by great powers. And some of the cases that I talk about in the book are a tanker war. That's the 1980 conflict where the US came into the Gulf to reflag Kuwaiti tankers, saying basically, you know, these are under the US flag, they're under our protection, and we're going to send in the Navy during the Iran-Iraq war to protect these tankers. And Kuwait, in the run-up to that, I talk about in the book, very effectively played the Soviet Union and the US off against one another. You know, Kuwait's this huge oil exporter, and they say, well, the Soviets are going to protect our ships. Uh, Don't you want to do something about that, America? And that's how we get to the tanker war. We see again at the Gulf War in 1991, And so these states, I think, start to show a lot of initiative to actually use their resources in this manner. Well, Emma, these states might be rich in oil and gas, but surely there's a bit of leverage here. They could use these as a weapon. I think of Russia and the Nord Stream 2 pipeline with Germany and playing this delicate game of turning gas supplies on and off and threatening to freeze Europe over the winter if the West doesn't do what it wants in terms of the war in Ukraine. So is oil and gas not a weapon? So this is the one area, I think, where the book was written prior to the current crisis. And at the time, I don't think anyone, myself included, expected that this crisis would be so bad. The thing you have to understand is that oil and gas operate very differently in how they are transported, shipped, handled, sold. Gas mostly goes through fixed pipelines, you know, so a supplier sends it to a consumer it's really hard to redirect that. An oil tanker, you can just sail it anywhere, pretty much. And there are some ways you can do that with gas, but it's harder than it is with oil. And so in the book, I examined the notion of the oil weapon or the gas weapon. The conclusion I come to from looking at some cases is that the oil weapon is basically non-existent. It just doesn't work because countries can just find another supplier if they get cut off. And that's exactly what we've seen happen over the last six months with Russia and global oil markets. Gas is harder. And Europe is currently in a position where it is trying to transition away from Russian gas. The Russians don't want them to do this. And so they're shutting it off even faster. And because that gas mostly flows through fixed pipelines, they have the leverage. And so the conclusion that I actually come to in the chapter is the oil weapon's pretty non-existent. The gas weapon's really only useful if you're in a situation where the pipelines make you very dependent on one country, and that's pretty much limited to the post-Soviet space. So we're kind of looking down the prospect of the gas weapon maybe working at the moment, but again, in the very near term, as soon as this transition's been made, it may not exist anymore. Maybe I should just back up for one minute, actually, because one of the things that I say right at the start of the book is 
we need to talk about what a petrostate actually is. Because a lot of the literature in this space and a lot of the more polemical works you find on airport bookshelves will use the word petrostate to basically describe any state with some relationship with oil and gas. And so what I say in this book is we need to be a little more precise in thinking about how states relate to their oil. And I basically say, well, there's kind of three ways you'd think about this. We could think about states that are, as I said, sort of resource cursed, right? They're so dependent on oil and gas revenue that it shapes their entire politics and economics at home. Then there's another version where perhaps that doesn't happen, but perhaps the state just becomes extremely wealthy on a per capita basis. Norway is a wonderful example of this. They clearly don't have the resource curse, but they have a huge oil and gas dividend that they use for foreign policy purposes. And then sort of the third set of countries would be ones that are major global exporters. So they have a serious influence on the world oil market. And that can range from America or the Saudis up around 12, 15% of world supply down through states that produce, you know, even 1% of global supply is a lot of oil. And if production in those states falls off, then you get a spike in global prices. That's helpful, I think, to understand the ways in which these states relate to their oil and how it shapes their foreign policy. So I just want to clarify that before we moved on. But doesn't it also make them especially vulnerable, especially weak. I think of Saudi Arabia. I've been speaking at the UN to the Security Council just in the last week about the transnational threat of terrorist drones, about how Houthi rebels in Yemen are able to fire missiles and drones over thousands of kilometres. And instead of targeting specifically military bases, or that's what they do sometimes, their main target is oil pipelines, it's oil refineries. Our listeners around the world will remember in 2019 when the Aramco oil processing plants in Saudi Arabia were hit by drones and precision missiles. And you're right, it took off 6% of the world's oil-making capacity and shot prices through the roof by $11 up to around $65 a barrel. Now, at this moment in time, $65 a barrel might be quite a nice idea, but back then a jump by $11 was quite a lot just because of one attack in one moment in time on one nation's state. And so I suppose the question is, is that when we start to look at these states, you know, we see them as powerful oil capitals that make these big decisions around the world, but are they not just super vulnerable? So in some ways they are, right? Because energy is critical infrastructure. The pipelines that are used to transport energy can be vulnerable, as you say, to attacks. Processing facilities can be vulnerable. The sea lanes that are used to transport energy is where a lot of the attention has always focused on this from an energy security point of view. And so these states do have vulnerabilities. One of the things, however, that I talk about in the book, there's a whole chapter about this, about the ways in which petrostates have been able to leverage that into great power protection, right? And the classic example here is the US-Saudi relationship, right? That the US is willing to actually provide defense for the Saudis who basically don't provide it for themselves because it is fearful of disruptions to the energy supply. Since about the 1970s, the US has provided basically security of transit through the Straits of Hormuz in the Gulf. And that is all to do with the energy trade. And so you're absolutely right that it provides a vulnerability for these states. But in some ways, you know, if they're big enough producers, they don't necessarily have to do it themselves. But if you wanted to target 
the United States and to bring certain industries to a halt or, let's say, degrade their military power by not providing them with fuel or slowing access to fuel for the United States, then does that not make countries like Saudi Arabia or the UAE in that region a de facto target of, I would say at this point, non-state actors like terrorists or perhaps into the future more of a peer competitor. You know, we look at how Russia has been shut off from global trade and has had to find new markets for the sale of its own resources and the acquisition of weapon systems. We see that it's dealing more and more with pariah states like Iran. So when we start to think about that when it comes to the United States and its links to places like Saudi Arabia, then does Saudi Arabia by default become a target for those who want to target the West? Well, one of the reasons why the US was so heavily involved in the Middle East during the Cold War was that necessity to ensure not just that energy continued to flow, but also that the Soviets didn't necessarily have the influence in the region that they could use or the military presence in the region that they could use in order to take steps like that to shut off the energy supply to make it more difficult for the US. That, for example, is one of the reasons why the Carter administration got involved in funding the Mujahideen in Afghanistan back in 1980-81 was because they were fearful that if the Soviets pushed through Afghanistan pushed further down into the Gulf, then they might have this control over the energy space. Now, the thing that's really interesting is that situation has changed quite dramatically. And something I get into in the last chapter of the book is the global energy market is undergoing some serious shifts in two sort of specific areas. One is technological. So the growth of fracking, which has meant a lot more production back in America, in Canada, in Western countries in general. And then the other is sort of the start of this transition to greener energy. And in both cases, that means that the US in particular and the West in general is more energy secure than they have been. And actually, the country that now has the biggest vulnerability on the energy front is China, which now fears that, you know, maybe it's the United States that will shut off its supplies. So there's some really interesting kind of reorientation going on here in global energy markets and security. That's really interesting. So is the US now energy independent or does it still rely on these oil making states around the world in the Middle East? I mean, there's a lot of people at the time who said the only reason we're going into Iraq in 2003 is to secure the oil and make money off Iraq. But since then, like you said, there has been this global shift. And so does the US see less of a need to interfere in the affairs of the Middle East because it has this increase in supply of domestic energy? And this brings me back around to the question that I just looped around and asked myself, I guess, is the US energy independent? So I hate that phrase, energy independent. <laughs> I think you'll find a lot of people in the energy space kind of feel the same way because the answer is kind of we're kind of energy independent, but not as much as you might think. The thing that you need to understand, and this might be something, you know, your listeners, if they don't follow global energy markets, they might not know, oil is priced globally. So the metaphor that people often use when talking about it is that the oil market is a bathtub, a global bathtub. All the little handles at the top, the spigots, pour into a giant bathtub of oil and then comes out in a bunch of different places through plug holes. And the level of oil in the bath basically determines the price, right? So this is a way of saying that shortfalls in anywhere around the world can increase the price. So even though we're producing a lot at home, the price can go up. 
but we are still in a better position than we were 30 years ago. And the reason is that even though we're still vulnerable to those price disruptions, we're not nearly as worried about supply disruptions. So if we were to get into a war with China, right, we don't have to worry that the Chinese are going to interdict fuel supplies trying to sail to the United States because we produce it here at home. And there's always been this debate where economists basically say the market will sort it all out. You don't really need to worry about disruptions in the energy space because the market will handle it. And the security studies folks basically say, no, 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 you can actually shut off oil transit and then it's a big problem for conducting a war. So that's why there's this difference. We're in a much better place in terms of the security situation, even if we still have to deal with those big economic considerations. So if the US wanted to wage a war somewhere around the world, like it did in Afghanistan or Iraq, or back in Vietnam, let's say, it has the energy security, you might hate that term as well, it has the energy security to be able to provide its troops with the resources it needs, or would it still need to go back to states like Saudi Arabia, let's say, who did supply the US with fuel for its armoured vehicles, for its aircraft, for its tanks, for everything it needed for Vietnam? That's right, isn't it? Saudi Arabia was one of the sources? Yeah, that's correct. And actually, it's a really interesting case because it happens during the 1973 oil embargo, which is where the Saudis, the Iranians, the other OPEC countries in the Middle East get together and they embargo Western states over their support for Israel in the Yom Kippur War. And despite this, despite the fact that they've embargoed the US, they say they're not sending any resources, the Saudis do agree to quietly supply the US with fuel for the war effort in Vietnam. Because at the same time as they're trying to coerce the United States on the question of Israel, they're worried about the Soviets and the communists in Vietnam. And so they're kind of playing both sides in that situation. Oh, wow. I see. So there's lots of money to be made off war, I suppose. That's not something that is particularly surprising to us or to any of our listeners. How much of a tyrant really was Julius Caesar? Would we have ever stood a chance against the first dinosaurs? And did Helen of Troy really have the power to launch a thousand ships? Well, you can expect all of this and more from the ancients on History Hit. Join us twice a week, every week, as we explore some of the greatest moments of our ancient past. Subscribe to The Ancients wherever you get your podcasts. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. So let's bring all of this together, this history, and start to cast it back towards Russia and try and use this knowledge to have a glimpse towards the future. Now, we're hearing some rumblings at this moment in time in late September 2022 that President Putin is thinking about urging to bring an end to this conflict. That's off the back of a lot of pressure that appears to be coming from India and from China, both countries who have been increasing their imports of Russian resources recently. So why might this be the case? Why might there be pressure from China and from India, who seem to be benefiting from the conflict in some ways, to try and bring the war to an end? Is this to shore up their own supply lines? You know, I think actually, in many ways, the urging the Chinese and the Indians seem to be doing on this front has as much to do with non-energy issues. So food supplies, for example, have been impacted seriously by the war in Ukraine, other commodities likewise. And so I don't think it's as much about energy in this case as it is about other economic and political questions. I will say, you know, this war has been, you know, I mean, obviously, utterly terrible conflict. But from the point of view of energy security, it has been illustrative it has shown that you really can't cut a major global exporter like Russia out of the world economy. There are limits to what sanctions can do. And the fact that the Indians and the Chinese and the Indonesians and others are buying Russian oil even at a discount, kind of against the push of the West for sanctions, shows you that there is just that appetite there for energy that needs to be filled. So this is about trying to restabilize global resource markets when it comes to food predominantly, but also perhaps a little bit to do with energy. One thing that's been playing in my mind, Emma, as we've been speaking is we've kind of come up with a bit of a typology of what a petrostate, an oil-rich state might be. They appear to be more bullish, more aggressive. You say they might be more inclined to go to war. They're strong states, although of course that reliance on oil, on resources, on natural gas might make them more unstable in terms of great fluctuation in the global economy and in resource prices. But they're also heavily armed states, so you wouldn't really want to go into direct peer-on-peer conflict with them. And when wars are raged around the world, these petrostates appear to make a lot of money off them. Now, as we outline all of those different characteristics, does that not just define Russia? (laughs) 
It does. And I would say that not all of those characteristics apply to all petrostates. One of the ways you could think about it is, you know, that oil or gas revenue, and we maybe should talk about gas in a minute because I think that's important here too. But oil and gas revenue in particular can be used to do a lot, but where you're starting from makes a difference. So the example that I really like to talk about in this case is Qatar, which is an absolutely tiny Persian Gulf state. It's so tiny, the Saudis considered conquering it a couple of years back, and they probably could have. It's got, you know, less than a million population. Many of the population are guest workers. And nonetheless, the Qataris have used their massive inflows of gas revenues to kind of build their profile on the international stage. And so they give a lot in humanitarian aid. They have spent a lot of money funding proxies, political parties, violent groups throughout the Arab Spring to build up their profile. And then the other thing that they've done is they have effectively paid to source a U.S. base in Qatar. And that's the Al-Udaid base is where the U.S. maintains most of its air forces in the region. And the Qataris pay most of the costs of that base. And so they benefit from having the U.S. dependent on them. And it's quite a savvy move. And again, I think Qatar is just a really great example because it's such a tiny state. It would never be anything militarily if it just built up itself. But it's used its wealth in sort of slightly smarter ways to ensure its own security. Would we call that kind of soft power then? They're using their natural gas-rich nation as well to promote themselves in a positive way on the global stage in means that are below the threshold of conflict and military hard power. Exactly. And they've also presented themselves as a home for mediation in difficult conflicts. So the negotiations between the United States and the Taliban over Afghanistan, that took place in Doha, in Qatar, because the Qataris paid the costs to put up the Taliban representatives in nice hotels and basically sponsored the process. And so it's, again, it's just really interesting how they've been able to build that soft power through using the wealth, the one thing they have in excess. So are they also learning lessons from history here? Because as you talk about Qatar, I'm thinking of Kuwait, and I'm thinking of how vulnerable Kuwait was when Saddam Hussein was bankrupted after years of the Iran-Iraq war and desperately needed to have oil revenues to bolster his national coffers and so crosses that sovereign line and we have the start of the first Gulf War in 1991. So are they learning the lessons here that if you don't do this, both in terms of hard and soft power and tie yourself to the US, then you might be invaded by one of your neighbouring nations who want to get hold of your super profitable resources? I mean, it's almost medieval when you put it like that. You're taking the castle that's got the gold reserves. I think there is something to that in that states like Qatar do view having a US military base there as a deterrent, right? No one's going to attack as if there's a US military base in our soil. And I think they're probably right on that front. But I will say there's actually quite a lot of evidence that states really don't invade one another for resources very often. And when they do, it's mostly in extremists. So in the depths of a very difficult war, you're looking for resources anywhere. You know, Japan invading the Dutch East Indies during the Second World War is one example that's often cited. But otherwise, this is Emily Meyerding's book on oil wars, but it's very interesting because it basically shows that it is really difficult to invade, occupy, extract the oil, sell the oil, and the difficulty of doing all of that means that it's not typically profitable to invade for oil. We're in a world where the key agenda on the minds of international 
world-leading superpower politicians is that we are in the midst of a global climate crisis. And you mentioned this transition to green economies and greener ways of making energy, renewable energies such as wind turbines. Does this mark the end? As we move towards electric cars and a whole shift in the way in which our economies operate, does this mark an end to the petrostate, to the future of these oil economies? This is something that I get into in the last chapter of the book, and it is a really interesting question. There's kind of these two aspects to it. So one is, does this mean the end of dependence for Western states? And the answer is, we're moving away from dependence. If you look at what's happening in Europe right now with the attempt to transition off Russian gas, it's going to be a very rough couple of years. But if they succeed in doing it, Europe is going to be much more energy secure, much less vulnerable to shutoffs in that area. And so I think these changes are pretty good for Western states, we may have to think a little more about where other critical minerals and resources come from, right? So an electric vehicle uses a lot more copper, for example, right? But none of these, I think, is quite as critical or as problematic as oil and gas. That's the you know importing side of it. The exporting side is for petrostates, they're in quite a difficult situation. Some states that are only just discovering oil like offshore because they've got this new technology, they're sort of in a position where it's like, we'll extract it as fast as possible and sell it before the market drops out at the bottom. And then other states like Saudi Arabia or you know states that are very dependent on oil revenues at some point, there's going to be a decline in demand for their oil. And then it's going to be a bunch of petrostates chasing the best remaining available customers. And some of these states may end up very impoverished as a result. So, you know, that is also a concern for those of us that work in the security space in terms of instability and what happens in these states after oil. This is a genuine question, I promise not a politically loaded one. When it comes to the West and the United States and European nations, there is this big drive to change the economies from taking on fossil fuels and move towards greener energies and renewable energies. Is that the same in China? Is that the same in Russia? Because if it isn't, and they still need for the next generation and for a 100 years to come to rely on fossil fuels, then what you're saying can't be the case, because surely these petro-nations will have all of the funding that they need, because China is a behemoth of an economic giant that is likely to surpass the economy of the United States very, very soon, and by some calculations has in terms of global exports. So is that not also more of a future? And I suppose I ask this question with my own research on the Arctic in mind, because Global warming, whether you believe it's human-engineered or human-caused, or whether you believe it's just natural global warming over the history of the Earth, is melting the ice in the Arctic. That is just a simple fact. And instead of nation-states coming together to protect that space, that natural safe haven, that crucible of global flora and fauna, instead of protecting that, they're engineering, they're moving, they're rustling to try and take certain parts of the Arctic so that they can tap into those resources, get more oil and gas, and like you mentioned earlier, get more of those natural rare earth resources that are needed for the tech economy as well. So I can see on one side how we might be heading towards a future where there is less power for these oil-rich and natural gas-rich states. But is there not an alternative future there, Emma, where actually they might become even more powerful? 
this is really all about time horizons. And over 50 to 100 years, yes, these states are going to lose a lot of power and influence and wealth in the nearer term future as we go through this very rocky transition, they might actually be more powerful. And I do think that's very much what we're seeing with Russia right now in some ways, is Russia has a huge amount of power over Europe right now as they try to transition, but two to five years and they will not have that power because the transition will have happened. So, you know, I think this is mostly about time horizons. But, you know, I would also, I guess, caution against assuming that the end of oil and gas is going to be the end of reliance on natural resources. Before we used oil and gas, it was coal. Before it was coal, it was like whale oil. The United States in the 19th century colonized a whole bunch of Pacific islands for bat guano, which was what was used to extract, I think it was some kind of white phosphorus out of it. It was used to power steamships. So we have been doing this a very, very long time. The contours of what comes after the oil and gas economy are not going to look exactly like oil and gas, but they're still going to be resource consumers and resource producers. And what policymakers need to think about now is how do we put ourselves in the most favourable position possible for our country in that future economy? It is fascinating. I went to the University of Hull up in the northeast of England, and that is a city that was built off whale oil. It was built off bringing in that natural resource of shipping it into the country and building entire massive industrial Victorian cities that are incredibly beautiful today, but they're built off that particular wealth. I suppose they were the Saudi Arabia and Kuwaits and UAE of their day. So let's look to the future then. Do we think that it will be things like rare earths, these key bits of natural material that are needed for our mobile phones, that are needed for our laptops, our computers, for the semiconductors that we build, for everything that we possibly seek to use in our new hyper-electronic industrial age? Is it the territories that have those resources that are going to be the petrostates of the future? Do we have a term for them? We don't. And the good news is that despite the name rare earth minerals aren't that rare, they actually exist all over the place. It's more just that a few states extract them right now and others need to develop extractive industries. So that's the good news. But then there are some resources that are more geographically concentrated. I think I mentioned copper already is one of them. Hydrogen, there are already global supply shortages because it's hard to make, hard to find, has medical applications in addition to energy. We might see states like if I was Chile or Peru, For example, I might be thinking about the future in terms of being one of the world's most important resource exporters. And I think it's also something we should just be very clear here. Battery technology and these things improving all the time, there may be resources we are not yet aware of that we might be using a lot of in 100 years. It's a really exciting space right now to be working in. If people are interested, I'd highly encourage them to read up on it more. But it's kind of a lot of open questions rather than answers right now. Well, it just so happens that our listeners can read up on this. You have a new book out. Could you tell us what the title is and where we can get it? The book is Oil, the State and War, The Foreign Policies of Petrostates. It's available from Georgetown University Press, but you can get it on Amazon or hopefully at your local bookstore. And I believe it's also being distributed in the UK and in other English speaking countries. Perfect. So we can get it all around the world. Emma, thank you so much for your time. You've left us 
ready with some questions to think about for the future, about what these future resources might be, whilst helping us learn from this long history of resource-rich states and how they've relied on oil and gas to really help produce their foreign policy and maintain their place of power. And I'm specifically fascinated by this point you make that Russia and Europe might not be reliant on each other in two to five years. And I'll leave it to our listeners to take to Twitter and to challenge you on that. Emma, thank you so much for your time. Great, thanks. Thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hip. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.